0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on air Linda Cohen along with you. Rare genetic diseases are just that, rare. But they can cause great hardship and confusion for the patients and the specialists who attempt to help them. And understanding these diseases has been outside of our grasp until quite recently. Here with more on all of this and what can be done when you have a rare genetic disease is Dr. Joan Pellegrino. She's associate professor of pediatrics and the director of the Inherited Metabolic Diseases Specialty Clinic Center at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Pellegrino. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So it sounds like, first of all, let's start out by just helping us understand when we say a rare disease, what's the definition of a rare disease?
1: So a rare disease is really a disease that's just not seen that often. So from a genetic standpoint, we would consider somebody with a disease of an incidence of, say, one out of 5,000. That would be kind of a common rare disease for us. So uh, I would say rare diseases could be up to one in a million. And what has been the
0: problem in terms of treatments for people with rare diseases. I mean, I know that I read somewhere that there was the Orphan Drug Act, for example, of 1983, tried to provide incentives for drug companies to develop treatments for people even when there were so few out there. So what exactly does that say about you know, the opportunity for treatment for people with rare diseases.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. The first part is you have to get diagnosed with a rare disease. And because they're rare, not all the physician or provider would even be aware of the disease. So it takes a while to actually get to the diagnosis. And then once you get to the diagnosis, it may be that there's very little research that's been done or opportunities for um, therapies like medications because it's um, such a small number of people that it's just not profitable for insurance. For um, pharmaceutical companies to develop medications for So this.
0: basically what you're saying is you're really kind of out there in left field, literally.
1: Yes, but I would say with the advent of the internet, um, that's really been a big push for research and advocacy for these families because they can, uh, you know individually one person just has a small voice but when you have a group of people with the same disease they can start lobbying for other efforts so
0: when we say these diseases are rare genetic diseases does that mean that they are inherited from their family or is it something that takes place in the process of them of them being formed so to speak
1: it could be either it depends on the disease. in the inheritance pattern of the disease but in general what we mean is that there's a change in the dna that resulted in this disease and frequently it's inherited from either one parent or both parents but there certainly are diseases in which the dna change occurred in the egg or the sperm that went to form the embryo
0: so up until recently these rare genetic diseases really were just for people who were clinically looking at them, a complex of symptoms that there was no explanation for. But of late, something changed. And that had to do with the kind of testing and genetic analysis that could be done. Tell us about what that is.
1: Right. So for many years, we defined genetic syndromes as just a constellation of features. So we'd say we see certain physical features in a group of people. They all seem to have the same medical problems, and we would call it a certain syndrome and give it a name. Um, then, uh, back in actually the late 1990s, early 2000, the Human Genome Project came around, and that really helped to define, kind of give us a roadmap. map of where the genes are, what, how many genes were there, because we didn't even know how many there were. And so that really spearheaded a lot of genetic um, diagnoses and research and development. And so now we're at the point where we can actually send off testing for specific diseases. So we really have two options if we see somebody and we can define one of those clinical symptoms where we say we've seen these features before, we've seen these medical problems, and it's such and such syndrome. We may now be able to send testing for that specific syndrome, if that's a syndrome that's had a lot of research.
0: So what is this term, next generation sequencing? What is it and what does it mean exactly? What does it do?
1: So next generation sequencing is a way for us to actually read the genetic code for specific genes and to see in that way that we can make a diagnosis because if you have a mutation or a change in a specific gene then we can actually give a name to what your syndrome is.
0: So you can identify and and basically isolate a specific pattern of change within the genes and give it a name and therefore actually find others with like issues and they often have the similar kind of symptoms that you're finding.
1: Yeah, and, and that's helpful when you're talking about research and, say, pharmaceutical medications, things like that, because if you can define a bigger population, um, there's a greater chance that more somebody will be interested in, in helping to develop medications on the road for these diseases. So it, that's, that's an interesting point because that's
0: what the first question I would have is, so what's the result of this kind of finding or capability? In other words, it strikes me it can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it obviously raises our knowledge level. It gives us the opportunity to perhaps um, know or develop treatment, um, targeted treatments for ha- perhaps or more or better targeted treatments rather than just treating symptoms, that kind of thing. But also, doesn't it also perhaps um, give information that we might not necessarily want to know? If, for example, it was a disease that had a very poor prognosis or outcome, we might not want to know that this is our this is our indelible future.
1: Right. So that really depends on why you're doing the genetic test and what kind of genetic test you're doing. So if you yourself or you have a child who has multiple issues and you've been looking and looking for an answer for what their issues are, um, and then you send off a genetic test, that may be helpful in that you've, you know, for one, stopped this diagnostic odyssey, that they've already had a lot of testing done that hasn't led to the answers, so now they feel like, okay, we have an answer, Um, we know what the disease is. Then the question is, well, what do we know about the disease? Are there other people out there with the disease? What is the natural history of this disease, and what can we do about it? So we certainly have some times where we've sent off testing and been surprised with the Diagnosis that we got back that it wasn't what we were expecting. Um, we have other times where it confirmed what we were expecting and maybe it was a disease we knew a lot about. Um, but, but some, the, oh yeah, ahead. so some parents actually are once... If we get one of these where we don't know that much about the disease, on the one hand, they're happy they have an answer and then on the second hand, they're disappointed.
0: Because? Because
1: they don't really have anywhere to go with this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no specific treatment for their disease and they um, feel like... Everything's now being blamed on that disease. Any issue that comes up with the child, they say, oh, it must be because of this. And so some parents are really not that happy once they've gotten a diagnosis. That's very
0: interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with geneticist Dr. Joan Pellegrino. And we're talking about rare genetic diseases and what to do, kind of if you have one. Well, I guess the question is recently you've been involved in diagnosing a, a particular case, a young young woman. Tell us about that story. What, what exactly took place? This was a young teenager.
1: Yes, and like many other patients that have come to see us, uh, she had had a lot of testing, both genetic testing and other kind of medical testing, trying to make a diagnosis. Um, and the family was frustrated because they couldn't um, get an answer. And they had done really all of the genetic testing that was available at the time. And we encourage our patients to come back every couple of years if we haven't figured it out because the field of genetics is moving so quickly that we have new tests that are being developed all the time. So she presented to us now, and we had the availability of a new genetic test called whole exome sequencing. So this is like the next generation sequencing. Um, Sometimes when you do genetic testing, you're looking for a single gene because you think you know what it is. Sometimes you don't know exactly what it is, but you have an idea it's a group of diseases. And so you can do what we call panel testing, where you're saying looking at a whole bunch of maybe 50 diseases that all have similar presentation. With whole exome sequencing, you can't even, you've gotten to the point where you can't even narrow it down to a panel. And so you're just basically screening the whole genome. Um, And so you're looking at thousands of genes, trying to determine if there's any change in the gene. And if so, Then we have to figure out, does that change even fit with the clinical features? Is this a gene that's been previously reported in other people? Is it a candidate gene, which means it's a gene where we think it might be causing some of the symptoms, but it's in fact hasn't been reported with human disease before?
0: (laughs) Um, That's pretty new territory. (laughs) Yes.
1: And, And also in part of the whole exome sequencing in our clinic, we're doing a lot of pediatric patients. So we send testing On the patient and their parents and sometimes we can find um, uh, changes in genes that have nothing to do with the individual with the symptoms and we call those incidental findings that we're finding a change in a gene that's clinically important but has nothing to do with the question we're being asked for example a cancer gene and so then we have to go through counseling up front with the say parents if we found out that they had a cancer gene, would they want to know that? Because that has nothing to do with why we're seeing the child, um, but it could have implications for their general health.
0: I think that's a very important question. And a question that comes up all the time when we're talking about once the human genome was mapped was this whole idea of would you want to know, if you could know, at what point would you want to know? Should we be screening all infants for genetic abnormalities at birth? irrespective of any symptomatology and the whole question is you know is this a is this a pandora's box are we opening you know a whole area of concern and anxiety and without in some cases out and without any treatment or any way of intervening so i'm sure that as a gen- geneticist you face those kinds of ethical dilemmas all the time
1: yes we do and i would say for our whole exome sequencing there's Um, A lot of wonderful things that have happened, but we also have those same questions about who are we sending the testing on and should we be doing it and should we be testing, say, for adult onset diseases in children.
0: So with this young person that we just described, one specific example, what was the outcome? Was it helpful in her case when you found That she had some kind of a rare genetic disease. What was the, what transpired? For
1: this particular case, it was confusing the outcome because we were able to um, find a change in a gene, but she didn't have a lot of the features that we typically see in that gene. Um, But that was really the only genetic diagnosis we made. Um, The things that were good about it is that there are um, some potential for the mom in the family to connect with other families. Uh, Since they reported this in a newspaper, uh, they were able to find some other families in the United States. They also have found somebody else who's interested in research. So these kinds of things, when the parents get together or the adults get together, it can really spur additional research and help with the sort of discovery, help you to define the symptoms of disease. The other important thing is that when we uh, made a diagnosis of a disease, we're thinking about all the things that have um, been previously reported, and what we're finding as we're discovering more and more people with genetic diseases is that there's a lot of variability. So sometimes things are more mild or more severe than we would have anticipated, and occasionally we're surprised with when we get a diagnosis and we think, gee, that's not really what I would have thought. Would have presented this way it
0: sounds like the we're in the kind of early infancy of all of this genetic analysis and understanding that sometimes things that you find genetically having changed don't necessarily be aren't necessarily expressed clinically in a certain way and vice versa i mean some things that are clinical symptoms don't necessarily have a one-to-one ratio or one-to-one relationship so we're kind of new at all of this and that raises again the specter and the question of how much warning how much should we be telling people oh you have the gene for x with it which is potentially deadly life-threatening disease because sometimes you can have that gene and it not necessarily show up as a problem but clearly, what you're doing is of crucial importance to all of our health and well being going forward. So, I want to thank you so much for coming oh, in and sharing you. your whole perspective with us. My guest has been Dr. Joan Pellegrino. She's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of the Inherited Metabolic Diseases Specialty Center at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.